Thank you so much for coming this afternoon. I am so grateful to the Chicago Humanities Festival, to Peter Kuntz, to Steve Young and the Poetry Foundation, and all the other sponsors who've helped gather us together this afternoon. And I have to say, I'm, I'm a bit intimidated by the uh, murderer's row of poets up here, so I'll just try to keep it brief. Um, and being a moderator is sort of a funny thing in this situation because I don't really have anything to moderate. I just need to call out their names and represent. So there you go. Having recently completed Behind the Lines, a study of war resistance poetry, I proposed this event where both war and peace poems would come into conversation, poems written by both veterans and civilians. This format, in some ways, is an argument against the critical doxa that war poetry by soldiers is the only successful poetry about war and that anti-war poetry almost always fails. There may be some general truth to this, since the dominance of the autobiographical lyric has favored attempts to represent war from immediate experience. Certainly, Vietnam veteran Yusuf Komenyaka and Iraq War veteran Brian Turner have stunning examples of such poetry. Yet in poems such as Autobiogra Autobiography of My Alter Ego, You and I Are Disappearing, or 2,000 Pounds, Komenyaka and Turner reach beyond immediate experience and become witnesses to the almost unspeakable encounter with the violence of war. At the same time, in an age in which we live at the center of empire, and in which, to paraphrase William James, the real war is the endless preparation for war, we all have a part to play in representing and redefining war. In a sense, the distinction between soldier and civilian is blurred by the phenomenon of what Paul Virilio calls pure war. And in the lives of people like Iraqi poet Dunya Mikhail, whose poems such as The War Works Hard give voice to Iraqi civilian experience of the depredations of wars during the 80s and 90s. Poet Jory Graham, whom I learned was the daughter of a journalist and war correspondent, her book Operate, uh, Overlord dramatizes Operation Overlord during the Second World War, collaging the voices of troops from both sides of the conflict as she grapples with the massiveness of mass violence. Finally, Gary Snyder has confronted the ways in which war permeates our physical, psychic, and creative existences. For war is not just man against man, but man against the planet. Finally, each of these poets in their own way has also worked to imagine peace. So what I'd like to do now, instead of discussing, as the original um, description suggested, the war poem's development, since I think such a claim is rather dubious, uh, progress seeming not the point exactly, um, is, to, is to simply share with you one sort of archetypal war poem and one peace poem as a way of gesturing toward what poetry can do and what it has made happen. No, a poem has never stopped a war, but poems have acted as checks against the abuses of language that glorifies war and has proposed alternate ways of being, seeds for a culture of peace. So for your handout, I'm feeling very teacherly, the first poem, Wilfred Owen's Dulce et Decorum Est, is perhaps the most famous war poem, modern war poem at least, an antidote to the centuries of heroic verse from the Iliad to the Charge of the Light Brigade. Written during the First World War, it dramatizes the weary soldiers who are attacked by gas. The eerie scene of watching another soldier choking to death becomes rhetorical artillery in Owen's attack against those who would idealize war. The final lines, Zulce et decorum est pro patria mori, are taken from an ode by Horace, 
meaning it is sweet and fitting to die for your country. Dulce et decorum est. Bent double, like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and toward our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind. Drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five-nines that dropped behind. Gas, gas, quick, boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If, in some smothering dreams, you two could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie. Dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. In this poem, we become secondary witnesses to war trauma, the surreal dreamscape of battle. It is an anti-heroic tableau in which the masculinity which war was to grant is stripped away. Yet war poetry also dramatizes the awesome and narcotic po uh, power of war and the contradictory feelings that emerge from it. In his memoir, Philip Toynbee calls it being, quote, half in love with the horrors which we cried out against. In war poetry, the human desire to test one's own limits, to challenge death, emerges alongside revulsion against the horror. In many other poems by Owen, Komenyaka, and Turner, we see how soldiers often fight for love of each other as much as or more than for love of country. Their love is also often described as brotherhood, but Jonathan Shea, in an interesting study, has noted how soldiers also act as mothers to each other. In the tradition of war poetry, we see degradation, but we also witness the respect for soldiers on the other side. In Owen's famous poem, Strange Meeting, we sense that Owen has more in common with the German soldier he fights against than the folks back home. In war poetry, we see the seething anger at the callous disregard by those distant from the scene of battle who call the shots. And finally, we see war poems that attempt to heal both the poet and the nation as they find their way back to some sense of peace. Yet recently, uh, W.D. Earhart, I interviewed, he was a poet and a veteran of the Vietnam War, recalled how when he was 17, he read Owen's poems and immediately enlisted with the Marines. <laughs> Which brought the question, can war poetry actually promote warfare even as it protests against it? Something about the virus of imitation, I don't know. We need, along with war poetry, a poetry of resistance to war and a poetry of peace. The next poem in your handout, Peace Walk, was written by William Stafford, a conscientious objector during the Second World War. Stafford wrote a lifetime of poems concerned with confronting the problem of violence and the breakdown of human community. Peace Walk. We wondered what our walk should mean, taking that unmarch quietly. The sun stared at our signs, thou shalt not kill. 
Men by a tavern said, those foreigners, to a woman with a fur who turned away. Like an elevator going down, their look at us. Along a curb, their signs lined across. A picket line stopped and stared the whole width of the street at ours. Unfair. Above our heads, the sound truck blared by the park under the autumn trees. It said that love could fill the atmosphere. Occur, slow the other fallout, unseen on islands everywhere. We held our posters to shade our eyes. At the end, we just walked away. No one was there to tell us where to leave the signs. The poem represents a specific demonstration, a peace walk, one that defies the conventions of protest and collective action. Though the poem clearly situates itself with the demonstrators, its self-critique renders what Yeats called an argument with ourselves, poetry being an argument with ourselves. Stafford self-effacingly points to the limits of the demonstrator's vision and of the walk itself. We held our poster up to shade our eyes, suggests a desire to flee the judging gaze of the bystanders. Despite the fact that any ideological placard narrows a person's perception, Stafford does not condemn the demonstration. In fact, the final lines contain in their lonely description of the protest a, a vision of a society of conscience. The fact that no one was there to tell us where to put the signs requires the individual demonstrators and not some authority figure to decide what to do with the signs, us, what we should do with the signs. Not just the physical placards, but the things that they signify, the dangers of nuclear weapons, resistance to war, a vision of human community based on love. So what can war resistance poetry do? First, by representing and enacting war resistance in poetry and action, war resistance poets become figures for our imagination in their self-questioning, in their urge to synchronize the beats of their language to the rhythm of peace movements, in their attempts to imagine the distant imperial wars, in their struggle for information and for understanding the syntax of war, in their desire to address their fellow citizens, to address us and themselves, these poets embody through words and deeds, through, sorry, through words and deeds, through words as deeds and deeds as words, a moral witness against the depredations of war. Insofar as people liberate war resistance poetry and all poetry from libraries, bringing it off the page and into bodies and into acts, it will become and persist as a living tradition of the imagination of conscience. As a supplement to and gadfly of the peace movement, war resistance poems valorize the struggle inherent in resistance, even as they complicate and question it. They ensure a more honest peace movement and create a climate where Americans might resist the manufacture of public consent. I'd like to conclude with a short poem that I wrote in response to the bearing witness phenomenon. I don't know if you've heard of this, but in 2003, 50 women decided as an act of protest to shed their clothes and form with their bodies the word peace that could be seen from far off. And, you know, my first impulse was to reject it as New Age hippiness. You know, it was Marin County, you know, as President Bush I once said, uh, you know, those hot tubbers in Marin County. But then I just wanted to enter in the spirit of that act, and this is the last thing I'll read. For the 50 who formed peace with their bodies. In the green beginning, in the morning mist, they emerge from their chrysalis of clothes, peel off purses and cells, slacks and gap sweats, turtlenecks and tanks, Tommies and Salvation Army, 
platforms and clogs, abandoning bras and lingerie, labels and names, courtesies and shames, the emperor's rhetoric of defense, laying it down, their child stretched or still taut flesh, giddy in sudden proximity onto the cold earth, bodies fetal or supine, as if come hithering or dead, wriggle on the grass to form the shape of a word yet to come, almost embarrassing to name, a word thicker, heavier than the rolled rags of their bodies seen from a cockpit. They touch to make the word they want to become. It's difficult to get the news from our bodies, yet people die each day for lack of what is found there. Here, here, the 50 hold, and still to become a testament, a will, embody something outside themselves and themselves, the body, the dreaming, disarmed body. Thanks. Brian Turner. Brian Turner.